friends, we're going to invite Daniel up to, to speak to us from uh, the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our preaching series. We'd love to pray for him. Why don't we welcome this man in our hearts. Um, I'm really struck at the moment. We, friends, we want to be a people who believe God. We must be a people who believe God. And that, I, I recognise that that's turbulent sometimes. We want to be a people who believe God. God is good in our hearts. So let's receive this man with faith. Father, we pray you would speak through Daniel to us this morning. We thank you for him. He's a wonderful blessing to us. Uh, he serves us so wonderfully and builds us up and encourages us. Lord, I pray that your word would go to work in our hearts as he speaks. Jesus, we love you and honour you as well. Amen. We're looking at Matthew uh, chapter 17, the transfiguration. And uh, I grew up in West Africa, uh, more about that later. But um, growing up in uh, the tropics is quite an experience. I was born there, came to the UK when I was 12. And um, I don't know if you've ever been in a tropical storm, but they are quite something. I, I absolutely loved uh, that feeling as a child that you're safe in your house but outside the window it just feels like the whole world is kind of being torn apart by the elements um, especially because in our house in Guinea-Bissau um, there wasn't any glass in the windows um, so there was just there was just some some bars to stop people from um, breaking in and there was some mosquito netting and so when, when it really rained outside, even though there's a huge veranda, you can kind of feel the moisture in the air. And also, uh, we had a, like a corrugated metal roof. And so can you imagine the noise of kind of a tropical storm thundering down just feet above your head on a, on a, a roof like that? And we would, you, you can't really sleep through it. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's, it's as if you're totally surrounded by this noise. And if they come at night and you're a child and it's pitch black, there's no moon, plus the whole sky is covered with clouds anyway. It's, it's inky black as you look out the window. And um, where we were in Guinea, there was, there was no street lights, there was no grid to be part of, there was no mains power, you're on candlelight after sunset. And so black, I'm talking about dark, dark, dark nights when those storms came in. And you would, you would be totally unable to sleep. So you're just sitting there looking out the window, watching nothing because it's just black. Every now and then, lightning strikes. And the whole scene is kind of lit up for a split second. You can see as, as, as far as you'd better see in daylight the incredible amount of light that for one second illuminates everything and then it's gone. And you'd be watching to see, you know, what's changed since the last time lightning struck, which trees have fallen down, which cars have been swept away. I mean, the, the roads would just be turned into rivers. So what we're looking at now in Matthew 17 is a bit like a lightning strike where suddenly into darkness, you see everything completely illuminated and then it's gone again. The transfiguration is just like this split second moment of total illumination, then it's gone. And it comes when God, the God of heaven and earth, has been incarnated into a child and is living as a, 
nobody in Nowheresville, and, and on this mo- in this moment, his true glory is momentarily revealed before he then goes on to a very, very unexpected future at the cross. Now, Tozer, who was a sort of Christian philosopher, he was writing in the 70s, and he, he says that, I won't read you the whole quote, because I find that in preaching, reading people quotes doesn't, doesn't go across all that well. But I can summarize it really in one sentence, which is that Tozer said that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, how, how do we do our theology? How do we, what theological method do we have? You know that word theology, theo, God, ology, study, the study of God. We're doing theology every time we sing. We're doing theology every time we pray, every time we listen to a sermon, every time we think about God, we're doing theology. How do we make sure that we do that rightly? As Christians... We go to the Word of God, don't we? The Word of God is him speaking to us about himself. And so stories like this that we find in Matthew 17 are incredibly important for us to understand who God is and to kind of think in the darkening atmosphere of these last weeks of Jesus' life, as he's beginning to be isolated, he's beginning to be persecuted, He's beginning to be betrayed. He's no longer surrounded by 5,000, 10,000 at every opportunity. He's more and more on his own, more and more hounded. And we know he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be abandoned. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be crucified. Into this growing darkness, this lightning strikes. And we get this moment, this story. So let's read. We're looking at Matthew chapter 17, and uh, I just want to recommend these little notebooks. This is the book of Matthew in a paperback, and it's got the book of Matthew on one side, and then the other side is blank. These are about three or four pounds on all good websites. Um, And I, I get through these. I think I've got about six of the books of Matthew on my shelf. Um, You can put them in your pocket, depending on how big your jeans are. Because I kept saying to everyone, you can just put them in your pocket. And all the ladies came up to me like, you cannot put them in your pocket. I can put them in my pocket, right? Try getting my size jeans and then you'll be okay. Um, just, just a book that you can interact with, you can carry around with you without taking the whole Bible. Uh, I just find them brilliant. So that's what I'm, I'm reading out of the ESV now. You can, get, you can get this in different versions. And after six days, Jesus took with him... Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, Jesus had, you know, the 70, he had the thousands, he had the 12, but he also had the three, this kind of inner circle of friends. They weren't, they weren't interstellar, this lot. You know, Peter pretty regularly let himself down and went on to betray Jesus quite badly. And um, James and John, just moments before, had been saying, you know, 
can we be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Can we sit at your right hand? So they're also kind of struggling for maturity. These aren't people that he's got around him because they're the best people in the world. They're interstellar Christians. They're his friends. They're his mates. And he wants them to be with him in this moment, partly as witnesses to be able to tell the story of what's been seen on this mountaintop. And I wonder what they were thinking. I don't know if someone comes up to you and says, Phil, come Come here. You know, you're sort of, your heart's sort of like, what? What's going on? What's going to happen? Curiosity rises. And if you spent some time with Jesus, (laughs) you just don't know what to expect. So what were they thinking? They get up to the mountain by themselves And he was transfigured before them. That means metamorphosized. He was transformed. He was changed. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. In one of the other gospels, this story is told, his clothes were bleached more than anyone on earth could bleach them. So this is a supernatural thing that's happening. This story is told in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Even the Christmas story isn't told in all three gospels. This is a very important moment. In the Old Testament, uh, once Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, all of their encounters with God are kind of mediated in some way. They come across, you know, God leads the people in a pillar, but the pillar is mist and cloud and fire. The Holy of Holies is inside a temple, inside a temple, or inside a tabernacle, inside a tabernacle. God speaks from a bush. When God appears to Moses on the mountain, he puts him in the cleft of a rock and puts his hand in front of him and walks past. When he appears to Elijah on a mountain, he says to him, was I in the wind? Was I in the storm? They they don't have these direct encounters with God. And yet here, something like that is happening. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the very image of God. He is the radiance of God. Something is being revealed here about this glorious God. The word glory has to do with weight, with beauty, with substance. So he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, if you've read the Bible, you'll know that Moses last appeared in the story, you know, thousands of years ago. Uh, Elijah, hundreds of years ago. Both of these guys are long dead. And yet, they appear next to Jesus for this moment. 
in Jesus' day, he didn't have the New Testament, but he had the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was basically divided into three long scrolls. You had one long scroll, which was the law, all the books of Moses. Then you had another long scroll, which was the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then you had another long scroll, which was the poets, Psalms, Proverbs, wisdom. And when Jesus later, after his resurrection, is walking with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, they don't know who he is. He, he tells them, starting with the law and the prophets, who he is, that all the law and the prophets point to him. And here he is on a mountain with the representation of the law and the prophets. These men who have, through their writing, pointed to Jesus are there at this moment of his revelation. Both of them, interestingly, had had mountaintop experiences of the glory of God that were completely out of the ordinary. And in fact, Moses, who was sort of the, the great hero of the Exodus story, and the Exodus story is kind of the gospel of the Old Testament. He was charged with leading the people out of slavery and into the promised land, but did he ever get there? In fact, Moses was forbidden from going into the promised land because of his lack of faith, which is sad until you realize the grace of this moment is that he does get into the promised land. Jesus invites him into the promised land. And so Moses' story doesn't end with the Pentateuch. It kind of ends here. We know it doesn't really even end here. It goes on into eternity. But Moses and Elijah appearing next to him would have been very significant to these three Jews. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. <laughs> um, Peter doesn't always say the right thing. Um, you know, imagine if I'd come in this morning, it's good that I'm here. Woo, you guys are in for a good time. It's your lucky day. I'm here. Peter said, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tenths. That's, that's the obvious thing that occurs to everyone in a situation like that, isn't it? Now, I don't know exactly what's going through Peter's mind, which is often true. Um, but there are at least two possibilities why he would have said something like that. One was that he has just seen the glory of God. And in every other instance in the Old Testament, that would have been related to the temple, the tabernacle, the priests. And the glory of God was kind of hidden from the people. They were protected from the glory of God by these tabernacles, by these tents. So perhaps he's saying we need some protection from what's happening. The other, the other reason you'd have temp tents is because you want, you want to settle here. 
and you want to be here for a while, and Peter's wanting to prolong this moment. It isn't the most helpful suggestion. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking. That often also happens to Peter. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. How you, how you emphasize something in a sentence changes how you hear it, doesn't it? Um, I, I always used to fall over the word anachronistic. Someone would say, that's anachronistic. And I'd say, oh yeah, I've heard that word. I can't remember what it means, anachronistic. And I'd ask my Cambridge buddies. I didn't go to Cambridge, you see. I live in Cambridge, but I didn't go to Cambridge. So I'd ask my Cambridge buddies, remind me what anachronistic means. And then I heard someone preaching and they said, Yes, it's very anachronistic. I was like, oh, that's the same word. Anachronistic, anachronistic. But when you say anachronistic, to my mind, that sounds like chronos, chronology, time. So it makes a lot more sense to me if you say anachronistic. I understand what that means. Here, depending on what emphasis we put on, you could hear this differently. Peter's saying, let's put up some tents. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Don't listen to Peter. I don't think that's particularly what God's saying. This is a kind of drop the mic moment. This is my beloved son. Have we heard these words anywhere else in the gospel? This is basically what he says at Jesus' baptism, isn't it? And the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus. God says, this is my beloved son. Back to growing up in Africa. I remember when I was about nine or ten, in the middle of the night, being woken up by my father. Daniel, wake up. Wake up. Right? Remember, no electric lights pitch black. I think he might have had a candle. What, what's going on? What's, what's going on? I'm going out for a run. Okay. But it's the middle of the night. And he said to me, I'm going out for a run. So you're the man of the house. So I've got three sisters and a mum. My dad's kneeling by my bed in the middle of the night. You're the man of the house, okay? I'm going to leave you a torch. There's a 12-foot fence around the property. There's a night watchman. But until I come back, you're the man of the house. I will come back. Is that okay? Now, I was young enough to kind of feel like, wow, the weight of the world. But old enough to realize he probably goes running almost every night. 
tonight, he's decided he's going to include me. He's going to wake me up. I know that he wouldn't leave his family in the hands of a nine-year-old if he really felt there was any threat. But what he's doing in that moment is he's saying, I'm going to go away, but I am going to come back. Until then, you need to behave in a particular way. I'm going to give you some resources, a torch, a night watchman, a fence. And I'm going to give you a purpose, which is to look after your sisters and your mom. That made a huge impression on me. And it feels a bit like that's what's happening here. The disciples have been told again and again and again, all through the Old Testament, but particularly, explicitly by Jesus, that I am going to die, I will suffer and die and be raised again. They know that. They have been told that. I don't think they understand that. I don't think the pennies dropped. But God not only is telling them those bad things, he's also telling them that he is in control. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He's the God who, from times of Moses and Elijah and Jesus, has been telling the same story. Jesus has come to die for you. This is good. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. I don't know how you feel about that. How do you feel about a God who terrifies you? Matt Redman wrote a book years ago, Face Down. And in Face Down, he kind of hints at all the times people fall down in the presence of God. And it is basically every time God appears almost. The natural inclination for humans is to make themselves small in the presence of this wonderful, glorious, great being. And... As a Christian, I have heard people thinking and talking and speaking in ways that make God smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to make him more palatable until you can basically put God in your pocket and bring him out whenever you need him as if he's an app. That doesn't comfort me. A God who can terrify me comforts me. Think about it like this. I was watching the film Jurassic Park with my little son. Okay, and I don't know if you remember that film, but let me just remind you of a particular scene. All the power has gone down in the whole park, so none of the fences that are supposed to keep, be keeping all the dinosaurs in and the people out, they're not working at the moment. So one of the characters, a little boy, is trying to escape from a dinosaur, and he starts to climb this huge electrified fence, but the fence is off. And he's being pursued by a dinosaur. So he needs to get over this fence before the dinosaur arrives. At the same time, another party 
is trying to get the power back on. Because if they can get the power back on, then they can keep everybody safe. This is Steven Spielberg, master storyteller. There's tension from the dinosaur. There's tension from the team trying to get the generator started. There's this little boy on an electric fence. He needs to get off this fence before the power comes back on. Does that make sense? He needs to get off this fence before the dinosaur turns up. Does that make sense? Well, obviously, in a movie like that, what happens is just at the right moment, the power comes back on. The little boy is just about to get off the fence, and he's kind of blown off the fence by the power and kind of lands in a heap in the field and shakes himself off and gets up, and the story continues. My son turned to me, he's about seven, and said, uh, that's not good. And I was like, that is good. That's, that's, like, that's, like, that's brilliant. He has escaped. The power's back on. And my son said, no, 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 no. The power's back on. The power wasn't even strong enough to kill a little boy. How's it going to stop a dinosaur? Yeah? I take comfort from the power of God. I take great comfort from the power of God. Imagine you're walking along. I don't know how often this happens in Peterborough. You're walking along, and an elephant falls on you. How does that end for you? That does end badly for you, doesn't it? Because your being cannot sustain its being. Its being overwhelms your being. How much more does God's being overwhelm our being? That's why all the way through the Old Testament, God is protecting the people from his presence. But Jesus comes to make a new and living way. So that when Jesus dies, when Jesus dies, some interesting things happen. When Jesus is born, he has a supernatural birth. His herald, John the Baptist, has a supernatural birth. His birth is prophesied and is attended by choirs of angels in the sky. When Jesus is baptized, a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. When Jesus is transfigured, a voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son. When Jesus is resurrected, there are angels proclaiming he's not here, he's risen, just like he said. When he ascends to heaven, there are angels saying, why are you looking at the sky? He's not going to come back. That doesn't happen at his death. At his death, a curtain is torn from top to bottom, which separated people from the presence of God, because now a new and living way to be with God has been created in Jesus. Isn't that glorious? So that, even though when in the Old Testament people would put out their hand to touch the Ark of the Covenant because it was falling, would die, 
And these disciples fall on their faces, terrified. Jesus comes to them and says, rise, have no fear. He lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus. There are lots of ways to summarize the whole book of the Bible, the whole story, but surely one of them would be no one but Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one this vision. All the way through the gospel, Jesus is carefully curating who knows what, when. So he often says to people that have been healed, don't tell anyone. Okay, I've already got thousands of people following me. It's not time for me to go public, public. He's not telling, don't tell anyone ever. He's saying, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. When I was a teenager, I had a bit of a crisis of faith. I believed in God. I loved God. I had a loving family who was setting me a great example. I hadn't really heard any compelling atheist arguments, which made me think twice. But I had a question, and that was to do with the death of Jesus. Did God kill Jesus? Did Jesus want to die? I do believe in God, but do I like him? And how I came through that crisis was seeing so clearly that Jesus laid down his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down willingly. One of the gospel writers, one of the New Testament writers says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Isaiah says it was the father's pleasure to bruise the son. There is this bigger beauty to be achieved through rescuing us in this way. And just as my son wanted a fence that was actually powerful enough to kill a dinosaur, I want a God who's actually powerful enough to be sovereign over all things, including his own death. In Acts, it says, there were in that place gathered Pilate and Herod at God's command in order to kill Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection was why he came. It was part of the plan, and he was totally in control. It was for the joy set before him that he did this. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? And he answered, Elijah has come. Elijah is a prophet, I mean a real person, but also an archetype, a prophet predicting the coming of the Messiah. Won't another prophet come to predict the coming of the Messiah? Yes, that prophet was John the Baptist. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. What did they do to John the Baptist? 
they cut off his head and they gave it to Herodotus on a, not Herodotus, Herod's wife. Herodotus was a historian. Uh, Herod's wife on a silver platter. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So also is an interesting word. Have you, have you heard this, the, the Bible verse, John 3.16? For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. What does that word so mean? For God so loved the world. Well, it, it means two very different things. It can mean for God so loved the world, as in it's an amount, or it can mean in this way God loved the world. Can you see that they're subtly different? And actually that verse is saying in this way God loved the world, not the God so loved the world, an amount, but in this way God loved the world, he didn't spare his only begotten son. It's similar here. I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also, in this way, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. He's saying, what's happened to him will happen to me. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So I started with a quote from Tozer. What is the most important thing about you? Let me end with C.S. Lewis, who completely disagrees with Tozer. Okay? Tozer was writing in the 70s, so C.S. Lewis was writing earlier than that, in the 40s. But he'd heard this argument before. This is what C.S. Lewis says. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. So it might be true to say the most important thing about you from your perspective is what you think about God. But what's actually more important than that even is what God thinks about you. And so this glimpse of the transfiguration, this lightning strike, this moment of God's glory being revealed and yet everyone involved surviving and him not going then to start a political campaign or form a kingdom but to go to his death. This all explains and unfolds how God feels about us. That he would love us in this way, not sparing his own son but giving him up for us. So let's worship. And later we're going to celebrate communion together and really rejoice that Jesus wasn't spared, that he, for the joy set before him, went to the cross for us.